everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Nathaniel. And I'm Simon. And today, we're sitting down with Dr. Fiona Hill. Dr. Hill is a senior fellow in the Center on the United States and Europe in the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institute, former deputy assistant to the president and senior director for European and Russian affairs on the U.S. National Security Council from 2017 to 2019 and expert on European and Russian affairs, intelligence, and security issues. We're recording this interview on Wednesday, March 9th. Dr. Hill, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start by just getting um, a bit more insight into who you are and how you got to where you are today. Um, Specifically, what drew you to studying Russian affairs? Because you're now an expert on this. Well, it was all about timing. Um, And in fact, we're speaking against the backdrop of some pretty dramatic world events that are likely to shape uh, our perspectives for years to come. And that was exactly um, what happened to me as a younger person um, in the 1980s. I was growing up in the northeast of England um, in a a very particular uh, area, uh, a coal mining area, in fact. But one um, uh, in which people were pretty plugged into what was happening around them. I mean, this was a, a time when, I know it sounds a bit absurd for most people thinking about this today, where everybody used to cluster around the television to watch the BBC News. Mm. And so we were actually pretty well informed about what was happening. And what was happening in that time frame, pretty much from when I was about um, 12 years old, all the way to me going to college, uh, was a major crisis during the Cold War of a standoff between you know, the United States and the Soviet Union over the stationing of missiles in Europe. Pershing missiles by the United States and SS-20 missiles by the Soviet Union. And it was, you know, not surprisingly called the Euro Missile Crisis. And it was basically Europe's version of the Cuban Missile Crisis um, of the 1960s, which, of course, I was far too young to remember. But in that period, so basically from my um, early teens all the way to going to university, there was a constant idea that we might end up in a massive nuclear exchange in which... Europe would be ground zero, and the UK, where I was growing up in the United Kingdom, was actually more likely than anywhere else to be hit by nuclear missiles, because we had not just the stationing of missiles in Britain, I mean, not these particular missiles, but there was also other um, nuclear uh, intermediate and um, short-range missiles as well. We had uh, uh, nuclear-capable aircraft, for example, air bases all the way around. And where I was going, it was very close to the, the big radar stations, early warning stations that would have been one of the first targets by the Soviets. So I spent my whole time in school thinking about the prospect of nuclear war. And when I mean my whole time, I really do mean it, because when we got into the 1980s, in 1983, there was a war scare. There'd been a whole host of exercises uh, by the United States that the Soviet Union had misinterpreted. Now, I didn't really know that being a kid at the time, even with the BBC News, but we knew that the tensions were rising. And then in popular culture, everything was infused by the idea of an imminent war. We've just had Sting re-release, um, that some of you may have heard about this, a song that he um, composed in 1985 called The Russians, mm-hmm. which is about the Russians love their children too. Would there really be a nuclear war? This was just, you know, kind of a, uh, around this sort of same time as this real kind of fears of the outbreak of nuclear war. And he's re-released it now because of the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine and the threat of nuclear weapons again. But we had movies in the United States and in uh, the United Kingdom, threads the day after, TV series, books, every song that was kind of pop songs were all about, you know, basically nuclear war. And um, as a kid, I thought, that's it. 
we're all going to get blown up. There's really not much point to anything. Mm. And then I decided, well, maybe I should try to do something about it. And I had a, I'd had a great uncle uh, who had um, been in the merchant marine, the, the, the naval vessels that took supplies to the Soviet Union during World War II. And he couldn't understand why we'd gone from being wartime enemies in World War II to the Soviet Union to then on the verge of blowing each other up. And he said, you know, one day to my father, hey, Fiona's good at languages. I've been studying French and German at school. She should go and study Russian and figure out why they're trying to blow us up. And I thought, yeah, I should do that. I mean, so it's something practical rather than, you know, living in constant fear. And so I set myself off to try to answer this question that my uncle had had about why were the Soviets trying to blow us up, what had gone wrong, and to study Russian. And I kind of thought to myself, you know, even though I'm a kind of young kid, I thought, well, maybe I could get a job as an interpreter. And maybe I could try to interpret for some arms control negotiation. And instead, I found myself on a not dissimilar, but not the kind of path that I would ever anticipate. So it's all about timing. And I'm, look, I think as we're talking about this now, maybe there's someone out there listening to this who might be studying Russian, you know, somewhere around here, and who suddenly might think, well, you know, I need to do something as well. But it's the times that, uh, that really shape people. And just that constant knowledge that things are happening and trying to understand it for yourself that led me on this path to where we are now. I think one thing you mentioned right there that was pretty interesting is that this is a ripe time for people who are interested in Russian affairs to begin to study it. Uh, but something that's really important for that is uh, diplomatic exchange, is um, student exchanges. Uh, yes. But that seems like it's going to be quite sour for the next few years. So if someone is thinking about going into diplomacy with Russia... How would they go about doing that, considering studying abroad is uh, not really an option at the moment? Yeah, that really is. Um, it's tragic, actually, because I'm. You know, when I first started studying Russian in 1984, the Soviet Union was also pretty closed. But when uh, we got to the cemetery between Gorbachev and Reagan, when Gorbachev came in in 1985, things shifted, the country started to open up. And I was in um, an exchange program. Mm -hmm. I went to study in the Soviet Union from 1987 to 1988. It was the period when... Uh, Gorbachev and Reagan signed the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, and also had a big summit in Moscow. So, I mean, everything was changing. And now we've gone, as you say, full circle, and the country's closing down again, and people who were doing um, study there finding it um, very hard. Now, depending on how things turn out, we don't know where everything's headed at the moment, mm -hmm. there are still other countries where Russian is spoken, uh, people can go and study. But I think it's also very important to start to think about, you know, um, careers, there's internships at the State Department. Um, I mean, we still have such a kind of rich ability to engage with people who are Russian speakers. This war uh, that's been um, launched by Vladimir Putin and a very tiny group of people around him in the Kremlin, is not a war that is the responsibility of the Russian people. Now, we are taking actions there that are going to put a lot of ordinary Russians in some very straightened and difficult circumstances. But this is not a war of choice uh, in a democratic state where uh, there has been a lot of push from the population uh, for this conflict. This is a war that has been sort of imposed upon Russians as well. And there are many um, you know, Russians outside in uh, Europe, in the United States and elsewhere that people um, should engage with uh, for language, you know, study. I'm sure you've got great programs, you know, here and in the neighborhood. I mean, there's a lot of Russian speakers mm -hmm. in and around, obviously, California. So there's lots of opportunities to study language. But I think also um, thinking about other ways of studying abroad in countries that are adjacent um, elsewhere in Europe. Thinking about, as I said, internships with the State Department, getting engaged on uh, on-campus uh, activities. These are all ways in uh, which you can um, push forward on 
understanding a lot more about what is happening and being engaged. Mm-hmm. Uh, so shifting towards talking about the war, Putin has just announced without much clarification that Russia will ban commodity exports for the next few months. Why is he doing this, especially considering it's clear that Russia doesn't have the capabilities to be an autarkic war machine? Yeah, I mean, it's this is the countermeasures that um, obviously one would anticipate. Um, it's trying to emphasize that Russia has a lot of leverage still. Mm-hmm. I mean, although we've been hearing from Europeans and obviously the United States has made uh, announcements about um, uh, no longer importing Russian oil and uh, banning um, gas, I mean, in the form of LNG, uh, for example, it's easy for the United States to be able to do that although obviously it's going to have um, consequences on the global market. We're already seeing that at the, the gas pump mm-hmm. of uh, gas prices increasing. But in Europe, there's been so much dependency on Russian gas as well as Russian oil, particularly in countries like Germany and Poland and, and others, that we've been pushing for years for having more diversification. And of course, a lot of countries have um, dragged their feet, let's say, because of the, uh, the difficulties of, of moving away quickly. Um, and obviously, up until now, we've dragged their feet so much that they've got themselves in a, a bind. And Russia knows that. Putin knows that. Mm-hmm. And so that's why he's kind of making that announcement uh, to, well, I think, what he hopes is to concentrate the mind, you know, give people a wake-up call mm-hmm. and try to uh, push European governments uh, in the direction of uh, trying to uh, address his demands on the understanding that there'll be a lot of pain as a result of sudden uh, stoppages of gas or oil flows on his part as well. So it's kind of like what we saw the Middle East in the Middle East uh, during the oil embargo in the 1970s, that sudden shock on on the economy. Mm -hmm. What he's trying to do is to remind everybody that he has leverage too, that he can take the same kind of measures and countermeasures, and that there is a demand for Russia still in the world. In fact, repeatedly, Putin has said that he wants to have a world where there is demand for Russia, not just that Russia is... um, in some respects, are kind of seen as an aggressor, but mm-hmm. the way Russia is seen as an important part of the global economy, and he knows that oil and gas are the main ways in which uh, Russia is locked out and Russia is factored in. Um, as you point out, though, this is kind of counterproductive. Um, there's already a push for um, other countries to um, pull back, um, as we've already discussed, or as I already mentioned. But Putin is just trying to now force the issue himself, but in the hope that it gives us a jolt uh, to basically negotiate with him on his terms. Mm-hmm. And going off that a bit as well, um, just recently the Kremlin said that the U.S. has declared an economic war on Russia. Do you think we're returning to a Cold War time? Or um, like you've recently mentioned as well, is this the start of World War Three? Well, the economic war discussion is exactly why Putin is saying, well, if you've declared economic war on me, which a lot of people have been uh, talking about, then I'm going to show you, you know, what I can do in terms of an economic war. I mean, I don't think the Cold War um, is really a, a, a very good way of describing where we are right now. And in terms of World War Three, I mean, that obviously gets people alarmed and sort of thinking about the kind of massive uh, battles and um, the kind of consequences of, you know, the huge conflagrations and military encounters that we saw across Europe in World War I and World War II. But there are elements of those same wars and what we're seeing today in the fact that we're still um, fighting over the territorial dispositions and configurations of Europe, or at least Putin is, uh, that came out of both World War I and World War II. Putin himself keeps invoking those periods. 
he, in a way, declared war on us before kind of an all-society war. Um, in um, his uh, basically speeches and pronouncements on the expansion of NATO, the impermissibility of um, Europe encroaching on Russia's security. Uh, and now with um, the invasion of Ukraine, he's kind of laid bare, you know, basically territorial uh, and other aims and goals directed against, you know, Ukraine, which is very similar to the kinds of things that we saw in both World War One and especially in World War Two, when, of course, Hitler... Uh, regained or tried to take territories with German speakers in the Sudetenland, the annexation onslaught of uh, Austria, and then, of course, the invasion of Poland. And we were seeing a lot of parallels there. And Putin himself invokes all of these wars. In many respects, he's also saying that um, the invasion of Ukraine is for you know denazification. It's kind of, of basically ending World War II. He keeps referring back to um, these emergence of Ukrainian nationalist partisan movements. Um, there was a famous or infamous, I would say, Ukrainian nationalist leader during World War II, Stepan Bandera, who operated out the territory of Poland and um, basically joined forces at different times with Nazi Germany and led this kind of partisan warfare against the Soviet Union because he wanted the um, independence of a you know, nationalist Ukrainian um, state. Now, this was, of course, a pretty small part of World War II, but Putin constantly refers to that. He's blamed Ukraine for the Holocaust at different points, even standing next to uh, Angela Merkel of Germany uh, during um, speeches. He's always invoking World War II and twisting the history of this around, as well as, uh, quite recently as well, World War I, blaming Lenin and the Bolsheviks for, during World War I, making a deal with the Germans. Uh, the uh, Treaty of Brest-Litovsk that ended the war but was a, seen as a shameful peace uh, of uh, also uh, pulling apart the Russian Empire and, get, and ceding territories and then kind of creating the Bolshevik state that created um, a Ukraine that Putin essentially says is an abomination. I mean, this is all over the place with invoking both of the, both of the wars. And we're also seeing now, because of what's happening in Ukraine, a pretty large-scale response. We're getting weapons flowing into Ukraine from all kinds of uh, countries, not just in Europe, but you know, kind of more broadly, all kinds of support coming in here as well. We're seeing global diplomacy. The whole issue of Ukraine was taken to the United Nations. Um, basically, Haile Selassie of Ethiopia did the same thing in the 1930s to the League of Nations, you know, about the um, imminent invasion of um, Ethiopia by Italy. For example, we're seeing echoes of uh, the earlier conflagrations of earlier wars. We've also had an awful lot of conflict uh, on, in Europe and in the Middle East uh, over the last 30 years. It hasn't been a peaceful uh, disintegration of Yugoslavia, the wars in the Balkans, uh, wars in um, Syria, which are in, in many respects, and, and Iraq and Kuwait, which are some of the aftermath of the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, I've had war in Afghanistan. Um, you know, Russia has intervened in many different places, invasion of Georgia. I mean, you get the point here that we haven't exactly, although we've felt that we've been in a long period of peace and prosperity, if you're down on the ground in different places, it hasn't really felt like that. Mm -hmm. And now all of these things have sort of been joined up together in a way by the actions of Vladimir Putin. And that's kind of, you know, where we are right now. Now, in invoking that idea, but being you know, careful about all of the contours of this, we can then take action to try to make sure that it doesn't go further. We have to learn from our history, 
learn from the kind of ways that these things can escalate and have pretty concerted, focused diplomacy to try to stop things from getting any further out of hand. And that's why we really need to have this internationalized in terms of response beyond just NATO, the European Union, the United States, and have a kind of all hands on deck at the United Nations level, trying to encourage, you know, we've seen some uh, diplomacy, um, not just by Turkey, in addition to France and Germany, but also Israel, and but hoping that other countries would try to intercede in other world leaders who might be able to get Putin's ear to try to stop these hostilities. Um, there have been many instances of the Russian military deliberately targeting Ukrainian civilians. Uh, today, it was reported that they targeted a uh, a maternity ward and uh, in a hospital. Uh, is Putin orchestrating a genocide? And if so, what are the implications for what the U.S. should do? Well, this is the kind of thing that we saw in the Balkans. It's also what we saw in Chechnya. We've seen it in Syria. We have to remember that the Russian forces, when they intervened in Syria in 2015, it was done to prop up Assad and make sure that he wasn't toppled, and that the Russian military, particularly the Air Force, alongside the um, Syrian Air Force, was responsible for the levelling of Aleppo and a number of other major cities. So we've already seen this. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, Putin is saying that Ukrainians and Russians are one and the same people. Mm-hmm. So he himself has started to create a rather strange situation here because he's claiming that Ukrainians are not separate from Russians but so this is almost like suicide rather than even fratricide and it seems to be you know as we saw in Syria a highly punitive action and you know I think we're gonna um, have to be very careful you know how what we call this now mm-hmm. because it's not I mean he said it isn't on an ethnic basis because mm-hmm. Ukrainians are us he's basically saying here and yet he's absolutely committing war crimes. But of course, he's not wanting to call this a war. Mm-hmm. This is a technical military operation. Um, he's obviously trying to kind of play with all the wording here. But I think, you know, we can all see it for what it is. And there's going to be, um, uh, we're already seeing it in real time, a very fast response. I'm trying to um, basically take note of all of the atrocities that are being carried out. Uh, like the, as you said, that today the bombing of uh, the maternity hospital and all kinds of other civilian targets and cases already being brought to uh, various international courts to take action. I think you know one of the things that we're going to be seeing here in real time also is efforts to um, seize Russian assets in um, preparation for reparations uh, for rebuilding of uh, of Ukraine. Uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised if we do see kind of efforts at some point to have the kind of um, judicial responses we've had in other cases in Yugoslavia, former Yugoslavia, for example, after you know World War II. Part of the um, problem that we're having, it isn't a question that you've asked yet, but it kind mm-hmm. of flows from this, is um, what about Putin himself? Mm-hmm. Because you know, once you go down the kind of the path of labeling you know, what's happening, um, you do then inevitably get into the question about, well, what about the leadership in Russia? And again, if we look at Syria, we all said initially Assad must go. Mm-hmm. There was a kind of a desire to support the Syrian opposition to try to overthrow Assad. And Assad um, was on the verge of falling, uh, of, of being pushed out when uh, Russia intervened. And Putin is the kind of person who has fully processed what happens to people who lose in war, particularly mm-hmm. dictators, authoritarian leaders. And I mean, he knows as well as everybody else does the history of this. Yeah. And he absolutely does not want to 
have the fate of a Mussolini or a Gaddafi or a person like Hosni Mubarak, you know, and others. And so he is going to double down and double down and double down to ensure that he does not become the victim of events. And so when we're trying to kind of think about how do we stop this, we have to think about stopping the war rather than trying to push for any kind of regime change in Russia, because the last thing that he will want is to be put on, on trial at some point. So even as we're preparing war crimes and you know the prosecution of these, we're going to have to be at this particular juncture thinking about how Putin has a way out of this, mm-hmm. in a way that we can stop this war. And then you know over the longer period of time, how do we craft a larger response to what has been evident in terms of the perpetration of war crimes? How do we get the Russian state to pay for reparations? Mm-hmm. Basically, how do we manage this? But I think the first order has got to be, how do we get the hostilities stopped? And then how we move things along from there? And you see, the reason I'm hesitating is because this is unbelievably complicated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what we need to do is stop Putin from slaughtering people in Ukraine. So assuming one reason that he's invading Ukraine is to boost his ratings before the 2024 election, um, I mean, Russia's facing basically economic collapse at this point. Has Putin essentially shot himself in the foot? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, economies don't completely collapse, but certainly there's going to be a massive contraction and ordinary Russians are going to be very much hurt by this. And in previous sanctions, we've always tried to kind of avoid that because obviously from the Russian point of view, the government and Putin can always say, well, look, the reason that you're getting hurt is not me. Um, It's not our mismanagement of anything. It's not anything that I have done. In fact, it's because the West is always out to get us. And so part of it will really depend on how much information manages to filter into Russia through the iron dome of propaganda and repression and censorship that Putin is now creating, you know, around this conflict. Before, Russia was quite porous. I mean, information did come in. But now we can see that ideas of what this war is and how much support for Putin is and support for the conduct of this war is being shaped by television to a large extent. And the information space in Russia has got, you know, really um, much tighter than it ever has been before, at least in the you know the last 20-odd years that uh, Putin has been in, uh, in power. And so it's going to be very difficult to figure about how people are processing information, what conclusions they're coming to. Putin has to be re-elected in principle in 2024, but would he then you know, declare martial law, suspend um, elections? I'm starting to kind of wonder about this right now, rather than take the risk of putting himself up for a re-election in 2024. I mean, he's got the right um, with his amendment in the constitution, although some would basically argue with that, that it wasn't done you know, the proper legal fashion. But let's just say he amended the constitution. So in theory, he can um, run himself for two more consecutive terms up till 2036. That's a pretty long time. And he can, if the circumstances are extreme in his view, he could just, uh, again, suspend the electoral process because of a national emergency. And so it might make it quite difficult then for basically the Russian people to kind of filter in any opposition through the ballot box. So I think we're going to have to watch very closely about you know what happens here. Now, will people around him in the interim um, start to question what's happening and 
want to have a different course of action. And I think that's really kind of where we need to be focusing on it. How do you persuade and sway people to push in a different direction? Not for regime change against Putin, no matter how much that might seem desirable to all of us, given you know where things are, but to try to push off in the direction of negotiation and trying to find what might be obviously some temporary settlement to this, but one that stops the war and trying to take it and working it out from there. And I think it's going to be very difficult to create incentives for that as well, because so many uh, companies have pulled out of their own accord now because of just the revulsion about what's happening. Um, but the Russian economy is never going to be back to what it was before. It's going to be a much you know, smaller, poorer economy. And Russians, you know, per capita GDP could be halved, something like around 18,000 you know, dollars a year. Um, you know, something that's far less than that. That's um, going to be a real shock to the to the system. You're getting um, flight, uh, not just of capital, but of people out of Russia now. I mean, he's really, in many respects, upended many of his own achievements from the last uh, 20 years. But whether he's shot himself in the foot politically yet or not, I think we'll have to see, you know, as you said there, because, I mean, he could suspend, I don't know, a lot of the, the, the elections and you know, kind of clamp down even more than he already has. Um, people have been laser focused on Putin's war and its immediate uh, after effects the last few weeks. Are there any long-term developments regarding Eastern Europe or Central Asia that you've been tracking that everyone else seems to be missing when we're talking about this war? Well, I don't know whether we kind of missed them all, but it's just that in the horrible catastrophic situation that we're in now, it's just hard to remember that these other things are going on as well because we're also focused on Ukraine, but Belarus has been pretty much absorbed by Russia. And of course we know that, but we just haven't really thought about it, that you know, Belarus is being used as a, um, a launching pad for this war. And you know, we, a few years ago, we were talking about how to help Belarus pull away from Russia. Um, there was all kinds of talk about you know, Belarus having more autonomy and moving you know, kind of closer to Europe. Well, that's out the window. And Kazakhstan, uh, we just had before all of this, the intervention of the Collective Security Treaty Organization, the CSTO under Russian um, leadership after there was protests there and um, kind of what seems to have been political infighting you know, behind the scenes um, and Russian intervening to make sure that President Akayev of Kazakhstan was staying in place but then I was pulling more closer to Russia. The war in Nagorno-Karabakh um, in uh, the um, summer of 2020 has put um, Russian peacekeepers inside of Karabakh itself and now Russia's the broker of all the relationships uh, between and among Armenia and Azerbaijan and Armenia and Turkey and uh, was kind of basically calling the shots down in the Caucasus. Uh, Moldova, you know, we're, we're going to worried about, you know, is it that next in line if uh, Putin um, does actually make uh, all the Russian forces make more progress inside of Ukraine, does Moldova and Transistor get absorbed into all of this as well? And then... You know, there's all of the relationships that Russia has with other countries. And I think these are all kind of question marks now. I think the biggest um, big, biggest uh, issue of the last month or so going back to February, for me and many other people, was really China's foray into all of this. So against the backdrop of the Beijing Olympics, the Putin and Xi meeting and the statement of February 4th, that suddenly made China a factor in European uh, security. 
by China denouncing NATO expansion. That was a bit of a surprise. And um, I had a discussion um, with Professor Minxin Pei, and I asked him um, just, you know, today, did he, was he surprised by that? Did he think this was a big game change? And he did as well, as, you know, obviously a, a real expert in China, because I'm not. And, you know, watching it from the outside, I was quite shocked by it. You know, there's many constraints to, you know, the um, tensions in the Russian Chinese relationship that many of us kind of point to. But this seemed to have gone, you know, so much before, uh, beyond what we might have even expected in recognizing that the Chinese and Russian relationship has really strengthened beyond what people might have anticipated and gone much further because of the shared antipathy towards the United States. But this seemed like really remarkable. And so what happens next with China and Russia is very important to watch as well. I think we should watch that very closely. Um, China doesn't really want to be you know, in part responsible indirectly for the slaughter of Ukrainians and for, you know, basically the biggest military action in Europe since World War II. Um, then there's, you know, the question of um, all the Russia's relationships with other countries like India, the, the countries that abstained in the United Nations, for example, from the various resolutions, or those that voted against it. I mean, you're seeing Japan and South Korea really reacting. So how is this going to have an impact in Asia as well? And we spend, spend a lot of time separating out Europe and European security from um, some of the other regional affairs. But I think that this, um, and I think everybody else is starting to see this as well, obviously, and other people have been talking about it too, that this is going to have knock-on effects um, globally. This is like a massive earthquake with aftershocks all over that's going to lead to a lot of reconfiguration of relationships. Countries that have before been trying to triangulate among China, Russia, and the United States, February 4th might have suddenly thought, whoa, hang on, we've got a new block emerging. It's now China and Russia. But now with the invasion of Ukraine, wondering, is that the case? And what's going to happen afterwards and how everybody else is reacting now? And as you've you know, both asked in all the various questions, there's a lot of unknowns here. We don't, this is unpredictable. There's all kinds of ways in which this can escalate. And so we're going to have to, I think, basically keep a very close watch on a larger global set of um, relationships and interactions and reactions. So I think we have time for one more question, thankfully. Um, and I'd like to bring up a quote from your 1998 doctoral thesis. Oh, God. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, from Konstantin Azodovsky. I, I think I'm pronouncing correctly, hopefully, um, to just take one part of the quote. Um, Are we not idealizing the Russia we lost, failing to see that we have lost it forever? That Russia can no longer be reborn, it is long gone, and exists only in memory. Um, is this still relevant today or is it even more relevant now with Putin's actions? You know, um, I haven't thought about that quote for a long time because, I, you know, I obviously put it into a dissertation I wrote in 1998. Mm -hmm. My dissertation was about Russia's obsession with being a great power and how that was playing out in the Yeltsin period, so before Putin came along, and how it was playing out also in the late Romanov period. Mm -hmm. Both of periods have seen a Russian decline and these ideas of silver or golden ages in Russian history that everybody wanted to go back to. And yes, it is relevant because that's the kind of Putin has this idealized view of a Russia, a Russia that, that exists in his imagination, perhaps um, in his mind and in some of the circles of people around him, a Russia that he clearly um, wants to go back to, a powerful great power, a colossus on the um, uh, European, but also maybe on the global stage, or the superpower Russia of the Soviet Union during you know, the Cold War era. And... 
you know, in many respects, what we're sort of seeing here um, is someone trying to put into real life that imagined that imagined Russia. Um, you know, I've, I've called it different things at different times, but, um, you know, the Russian Imperium, you know, the, the mental map, um, you know, what it is that, um, you know, Putin sees, clearly seeing Ukraine is very much part of it, but not all of Ukraine. Basically, that whole point that Ukraine isn't a real country, part of it is in Eastern Europe and part of it was given to us, thinking that, that language is identity and that all Russian speakers um, somehow fall under Russia and, you know, trying to give Russian speakers passports and believing that there's a kind of a direct relationship between Russian speakers and the Russian state. Um, and it's always um, very dangerous when people let their imaginations, their visions, their views of history guide you know, their actions in the present, particularly when somebody has unchecked power. And we've seen this at so many points before. So, yes, that's a quote I hadn't thought of in a very long time, but you're absolutely right. It is relevant, as much relevant now as it was, as it was then. And in a way, all the debates about Russia was a great power that go back in history. Putin is trying to play them out and to put them into action now and demanding, you know, that Europe in particular recognise Russia's special role there, but also globally wanting to make sure that there is demand for Russia. And this is, you know, obviously one of the reasons that he invaded Ukraine, but it's also having the exact opposite effect, the very fact of that invasion, that a lot of people are now repulsed and stepping back and wanting to have a lot less of Russia in global affairs than they, than they did before. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. Thank you, Dr. Hill, for joining us. No, thank you very much for having me. And to all of our listeners, remember to stay hungry.